0: Greetings, my name is Mike Grain. Welcome to another Walton Supply Chain Center edition of On Shelf Availability. Today, we flipped the script a little bit and Tony D'Onofrio actually interviews me about the opportunity of RFID at retail. Let's go ahead and join in his progress.
1: Thank you very much and a really great pleasure to be with you once again. So lots going on right now in terms of uh, what's going on in retail and those kind of things uh and, and it's really my great pleasure to welcome uh my good friend Ma- michael grain and i what i want to do is actually jump in i do want to make some announcement at the end and if i forget matt let's make sure we talk about the retail conference that's coming up uh, yeah. on october 18th because i think that's an important addition to all this uh, this type of activities that we're doing but i want uh, mike to actually do his own introduction instead of me reading his bias so Tell us a little about about your yourself and uh, your journey, in terms of where you're at now.
0: Yeah, well, first off, uh, let me echo the good morning as well to all the listeners. Uh, thank you very much, Tony, for for having you on. I've I've uh, admired a lot of the podcasts you've done in the past, and you're right, Matt Pfeiffer. It's weird to be on this side answering questions. I'm usually the one who's asking the questions, but that's, it'll be a good role. I'll have to have Tony on my next podcast so I can ask him some questions. Uh, so. Uh, just a brief background on me. I've been in the industry uh, about forty years. Uh, started out with a uh, very small consumer products called Procter and Gamble, uh, directly out of Cincinnati, uh, and I was uh, I was there for about two or three years, probably five years total uh, between that and one of our manufacturing facilities. And in 1989, I got asked to come down to work uh, directly with a customer called Walmart. Um, And I won't go through the whole story, but just suffice it to say, P&G was a big uh, consumer products company. Walmart was a big retailer. We did not like each other very much, and and we really needed to reinvent the relationship between the two companies. So I came down, and I was one of the first ones uh, on the ground here, kind of played an information technology role. Uh, Did that for about uh, almost 20 years or so. Then I left P&G and then uh, actually left P&G on a Friday and uh, Monday morning, I was a Walmart associate. Uh, some people say if you can't beat them, join them, so I joined Walmart uh, in about 2008. I uh, was very actively involved in something called Retail Link, which is a retailing platform, but really spent a lot of time both at P&G and Walmart in the on-shelf availability space. Led uh, Walmart's uh, RFID program for a number of years. Uh, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into some of the specifics of that later. But uh, left Walmart when there was some patent litigation lawsuit across the industry. And it looked like RFID wasn't going anywhere. Uh, then got called back a couple of years later to come back as a contractor for Walmart. So I've basically been working with Walmart for about 40 years, 30 years, something like that. Gotten a chance to see both the supplier side as well as the retailer side, as well as spent a little bit of time at uh, Crossmark. Uh, which is a third-party service provider that supports a lot of the work inside of Walmart. So i uh, been very actively involved in the on-shelf availability, specifically on retail, uh, RFID and Retail Link, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you,
1: Tony. Thank you, and that's excellent background. And I also exactly do your point. You actually are typically on the other side with your own conversation <laughs> on retail in terms of on-shelf availability. Tell, your, tell our audience exactly what this series is about, in terms of what you're trying to deliver through that series, yeah, great question.
0: So, so uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that retail, as well, is never change is always changing, right? I mean, from from the first time a, f- a store got opened up, some of the things that are very important, such as sales and customer satisfaction, etc., are always front of mind. Profitability, some things like that. One of the things that I think is incredibly important to the customers who shop in a store is having enough confidence to know if I leave my house and go into a retail store that what I'm going to look for is going to be available. There's nothing more frustrating than going into a store and finding out what you're looking for is not available at that particular store. We're going to spend some time kind of talking about that later. But on-shelf availability is kind of my strategy. I believe every retailer needs to be Understanding that OSA, on-shelf availability, is one of their key KPIs or key metrics that they need to to have, they have goals for it. Uh, They need to be able to measure it. And by the way, there's lots of different ways to measure it. Uh, And and They have to address issues when things are not available for the customer, because ultimately, and I'm sure we'll get into this, customers are choosing every single day where they spend their money. And if you consistently disappoint them, they'll find another approach.
1: No, that's that's a really interesting. Is there an a one episode that stood out to you and can you tell me why? I mean, I know you've done quite a few way ahead of me. I think this is only my third and I've lost count in terms of how many you've done. But anyone who started stand out to you? Uh, boy, that's that's like saying which one of your kids do you like the
0: most? That's really <laughs> a hard question to answer. But I but I will give you one that I think is really pivotal. And uh, I'll be interested in Matt Pfeiffer's reaction because he's been part of every one of these as well. Um, We did one, I'm going to say about six to eight months ago, um, that focused on something called omnichannel. So it's the whole idea of customers having the freedom to buy things in a physical brick-and-mortar store or order them online. We call that buy line or pick it up in store or research online, pick it up in store. Uh, I believe we had Dr. Bill Hargrave, who's now the president of the University of Memphis, Justin Patton, who runs the RFID lab down in Auburn, and a very special guest by the name of Deanna Baker. Deanna was the senior vice president at Walmart, who I worked with for probably 10 of the years that I was with Walmart, but she's the one, and we'll get into this in a little bit, she's the one that basically said, I don't understand this technology set, but I can tell you one thing. I want to be able to have our customers order apparel in our stores and be able to deliver them to customers just like we do milk, egg, bread, cheese, and, by the way, socks. Right? And she wanted to do that, and she said, how do I do that? Well, I said, the first thing is you'll disappoint a lot of customers because your on hand is about 50% accurate. And so she, Chuck, created a journey that basically said, I got to figure out how to get my on hands more accurate so when somebody orders it, I don't disappoint them. So, my favorite episode of all those is, was her testimony, and you can go back and listen to the archive, where she said, I realized we had to change. I didn't believe some of the stuff, or, or didn't, I didn't want to think about RFID the way we did in the past, which is some failed attempts that we tried. I'm willing to go back and re-explore it. I have an industry problem, it's not just my problem, and there's a lot of other retailers that are leveraging RFID to do that. It will take a business sponsor who sees a business problem, RFID is not a technology project. It is a change management project, and it needs to have senior leadership in the business driving it to be make it successful. So to me, that Deanna Baker is probably more than you want to know, but that Deanna Baker episode was critical because it took a champion like that, and, and we'll learn a little bit later when we talk about this, Walmart is making tremendous
1: strides to expand that capability across the box. No. And that's an excellent feedback. I, it starts exactly that. Somebody has got to stand up and say, this is going to change the business. And that, that's extremely true. When it starts with the customer. Well, well,
0: let me, let me build on that a little bit. Cause a lot of people, and, and I don't mean to put anybody's effort down, but anytime said, anytime somebody says we're going to go into a tech lab and prove that this technology works. I kind of go, wait a minute, this is not a proof of concept. There's no longer a question whether this technology works. The question is, do you want to invest what it's going to take from an organization' st- standpoint, from a supplier engagement standpoint to make the changes necessary? It is not RFID is not a tech project. RFID is a change management project, and it's going to require business leadership sponsorship, not
1: something done in a tech lab somewhere. Extremely well said. Though. But you also just did an episode on the state of the industry as it relates to on shelf availability. How would you summarize where we're at right now in terms of this journey on, in getting on shelf availability under control?
0: Yeah, this is one. Of, this is one of those. Any point in time with any given retailer with any given situation, you're either you're either improving or you're getting worse, but the most important thing is to measure it. I would say uh I would say my my perspective is it's a problem is is right now probably more of a problem than it's ever have been. I mean, we're still coming out of the global pandemic issue and supply chain issues and stuff like that. Feels like most of that is behind us. There are still things like uh, odd hand accuracy issues a shortage of labor, uh, enough people to literally put the product back on the shelf and things like that. Um, I, I still think there's a huge opportunity for uh, both r- suppliers and retailers to share data uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. I'm not just talking about EDI transactions, but really sharing data around demand forecasts and things like that so we can get a streamline uh, of it. But but I would say it's it's probably worse than it's ever been. It's a big opportunity, and if we don't figure out how to get it fixed, the customers are going to make choices to go other places because they, at the end of the day, have options like
1: never before. Correct. And the smartphone is actually a, a accelerated that because I can actually make that choice while I'm sitting in your store and say, I'm going to buy for your competitor because you don't have it. Something yeah, it's, yeah you, go, you go to the retailer, you will
0: go to the buy the product, you want to be loyal to that retailer. They don't have it. And so you use that retailer's Wi-Fi and pull out your phone and order from their competitor, right? That's correct. Uh, I've done that myself a few times. So that's correct. I I, I have as well. And, and and I just wonder how many retailers realize that that's happening. You're
1: paying for a customer to actually buy from your competitor using your Wi-Fi. I think that's kind that's of correct. That's it. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about okay. uh, customers and and also this is actually one of my favorite quotes uh that was actually part of your deck so tell me why do you actually have it in your deck
0: well as part of my journey to um relocation down to northwest arkansas i i actually had the honor and privilege to work with sam walton it, it was is an incredible honor he was an incredible leader very humble individual but a very strong leader from a retail standpoint and we we were having some of the biggest challenges between Procter and Gamble Walmart during the early days he told me something which has always always permeated through with me and this is what he said mike if you thought of your company as an extension of my stores you would treat us a lot differently let me say that again if you thought of my company walmart as an extension or your your company procter and gamble as an extension of the stores that you're servicing. I'm really not the customer, Mike. The customer is the person who's buying Tide detergent in a Walmart store. And by the way, and that's where this quote came, this one of these quotes came is like, at the end of the day, are we meeting that customer needs? So don't think about meeting my needs. Think about meeting the customer's needs who's buying the product in the store. And after that, I saw this quote. and I don't think it was because of the, the discussion we had, but. His comment was very true, and Doug McMillan, the current CEO, has said a very, very similar thing, but basically, customers can fire you every single day just by spending their money somewhere else, and that's just as relevant when he said it as it is today, because we just talked about, if I go into Walmart, they don't have what I want, I'll use their Wi-Fi to order that product from Amazon and have it delivered to my house. So. The customer ultimately has the choice and they will find the product. Somebody will satisfy that need. And you can do that a few times, but eventually customers lose trust in you and start just changing their shopping habits to go somewhere else. So I think this is really important.
1: I totally agree with you. And and you are correct. He is a great leader. I actually have his 10 rules for business success on my wall in my office in a very large poster. I encourage all of our listeners to actually look those up. They are down to earth, but man, are they meaningful in terms of how do you actually win in retail? It's down to the basics, but those basics all point to the customer as being at the center of everything. So those, again, look them up if you haven't seen them. Well, Doug Doug and the current CEO, has one that's somewhat similar to that. He
0: said, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of loyalty there. You either are meeting the customer's needs or you're not. There's not a lot of loyalty to where they get the product. They're going to find the product. Uh, so in an omni-channel kind of world, if it's not at a brick-and-mortar store, I'll be able to find it in some other location and have it shipped to me, and you know, you will end up losing customers in the process. So I think it's always important to, to keep focus on the fact the customer, where they spend their money is where they make a decision to invest in.
1: Well, good, good. We're already getting good engagement for the audience. They love this quote, number one. Number two, we actually have a retailer asking, how quickly is RFID moving into other verticals like pharmacy? Outside of apparel, footwear, electronics, where they strong. So that's the question coming from the audience. What do you think? Yeah. So uh, here's what I can tell
0: you. Uh, RFID has been around since World War II. They used to do RFID on you know military equipment. It started taking uh, hold in what I'm going to call 2003 kind of time frame when. Companies like Procter and Gamble and Walmart started to use RFID for for case and pallet level uh, tracking purposes. There has been some start. I won't take you through all of it. There's been some starts and stops with that. Some of which are, hey, the technology is not quite ready yet. Uh, all the way to we're r- really using the technology for something it wasn't intended to be. To patent litigation lawsuits on the industry. There's a lot of reasons we've kind of started to stop. What I can tell you now is. Almost all of the apparel retailers that I'm aware of, not only in the U.S., but globally, are using RFID to know what they have and know where it's located. So it's clearly a, it's clearly a best practice, if you will. And we just talk about people like Walmart. These are all public companies. I'm not sharing anything that they wouldn't share themselves. People like Walmart people like Target, people like Macy's, people like Nordstrom's, people like Dick's Sporting Goods, The Gap, Adidas. You find All these retailers are basically leveraging RFID. Now, to whoever to ask the question, it's an obvious next step of, okay, okay, if it works in apparel, does it work in other places? And clearly, there are retailers that are dramatically looking, and Walmart's made it very public, that they're going into a lot of general merchandise space. So things like automotive tires, automotive batteries, electronics, sporting goods, toys, hardware, paint, home and garden, um, lawn and garden. I mean, all of these areas are, are, are already being used for RFID. We do know other retailers that are using it for things like cosmetics. We know retailers are starting to look at it for food, not only for on-hand accuracy and location, but also to use uh, that for Date coding product and knowing when that product needs to be marked down for a quick sale rather than have to destroy it. Pharmaceuticals are already being required to serialize all their pharmacies. It's not out of the realm of possibility that RFID could play a role in that as well. So I think it's the, the it's clearly the expansion is huge. I see a lot of other categories and a lot of other use cases that we'll talk about here in a little bit being used for RFID. I will make a caution it is not a silver bullet. It doesn't make sense for all categories. Um, so before people go, well, we we'll just do everything in the store, some categories make sense, some categories don't. For the most part, it is definitely an apparel, general merchandise, ice shrink kind of categories, uh, and potentially pharmaceuticals and food,
1: uh, where it makes a lot of sense. Well, the question I think is also going, getting down, because I'll qualify it, because I'm familiar with the topic, is. Is there going to be a day where a Procter & Gamble source tags their products with RFID, do you believe?
0: That's That's a great question. I wish I had that crystal ball. I don't believe that there will be a day where all products are RFID tagged in a big mass merchandiser like a Walmart. Now, do I believe that an apparel retailer or a sporting goods retailer or an electronic retailer could have all their stuff source tag, Yeah, I, I do. I I definitely see that as a very much of a potential. When you start looking at a Costco or a Sam's Club or a Target or a Walmart or all those sort of kind of things, are we really going to put RFID tags on you know cans of soup? I don't think so. All right, no, I are we going to RFID tag watermelon and cantaloupe? I just don't think so. No. And my personal belief is, and we'll get into some of the use cases here, when you have a high level of substitutability, what do I mean by that? If I go into a Walmart store and I have strawberry Pop-Tarts on my list to pick up and they don't have any strawberry Pop-Tarts, I'm coming home with Pop-Tarts or Ruthie will be mad at me, right? So it's going to be, hey, I don't care if it's private label. I don't care if it's changing from strawberry to blueberry, I'm going to buy uh those particular products, plus the grocery side, it turns so much, Tony. I mean, we're talking about s- selling multiple a day. That turn works so well that I don't know that we definitely need RFID at this point in time for the purpose of inventory accuracy, unlike things that are low substitutability. So Pop-Tarts are high substitutability. I'm going to leave the store with... I may not got what I wanted, but I do know I'm going to leave the store with Pop-Tarts. Let me give you another example. Um, Automotive tires. You have a truck, and it takes a certain size tires. And you go into a store, like a Walmart, and you go, I need four tires. And they come back and go, Tony, I got three. Do you want us to put three on? No, I don't want you to put three on. Do you have any other option? No. I'm going somewhere else. Substitutability is very, very important. Printer cartridges. Those kind of general merchandise. Uh, Socks. Uh, shoes, things like that where I need to have the size and the style that I'm looking for, I don't have a lot of substitutability options in that store. So at this point in time, uh, I I believe those are the categories where we're going to go next, which is all the general merchandise. I think there's use cases for other things like pharmacy and things like that. But to me, in a consumable business like bread or or grocery or, or dry grocery or even the Tide, tide detergent, we've got all kinds of Tide on the shelf. Do I need to really put RFID tags on
1: everything? Probably not. So, so we're getting a ton, a ton of questions. So I bet we going, are. Too. And I will get to some of these questions as we go, but I want to make sure we also share with you some data because as most of you know, I also like to share data in these types of webinars. So let me move on. So inventory distortion is a huge problem the latest research that was just published by I, I, the ihl group it's 1.77 trillion what are your thoughts in terms of inventory distortion well the, the, the to define that
0: 1.7 trillion inventory distortion that to me it looks like it's both out of stocks on one stay hand and in and uh, overstocks that feels like a huge number worth people paying attention to number 1 Number two, I would say it's pretty interesting that it's it's roughly you know two thirds out of stock and a third of overstocks. The out of stocks are the ones that are going to disappoint the customers, right? Having too much of something will not that'll disappoint the retailer because they got to (laughs) because of stuff like that. So there's clearly advantages for. Here's what I here's what I would tell you. Every retailer, and this is hard to do, but I think it's important. Every retailer needs to know exactly what they have and exactly where it is at all times. Now, that's a nice, easy thing to say, but the reality is they don't know what they have or don't have or where it's located. Otherwise, they wouldn't have overstocks and understocks. So the key is figuring how you measure these things and then put them into your KPIs, because I would believe that most retailers don't know how bad they are out of stock. They, they They don't even aren't even able to say, what is it you're actually on-shelf availability to the customer, number one. Number two, how do you measure it, right? Yeah. Those are those are very, very important questions that are not trivial questions. They're really
1: hard to measure, but they're very, very important as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And then they actually list on this chart to the four primary areas in terms of where the problem exists. And I'm just gonna focus on the top four, which are suppliers, retail personnel, internal prices and theft is also up there. And in fact, there's a question on in our Q, Q&A that says talks about exactly that theft and how it gets impacted by these types of solutions. So any general comments of, on these sources of the blame for inventory distortion? Yeah, this was a, this one's
0: this one's an interesting one. Uh, from my perspective, supplier issues that sounds like it's the supplier that's the problem. Sometimes it's the retailer's communication with the supplier that's the problem. Like, I don't order, I don't order, I don't order. All of a sudden, I order a whole bunch and I want it next week. I don't have it. So that looks like a supplier issue, but it's really more a retailer engaging with the supplier and giving them an accurate forecast of when they want to have it, et cetera, so they could play in their manufacturing that way. So while supplier issue looks like, wow, the suppliers need to get their act together. Here's the deal. The suppliers are interested in selling their stuff as well. I mean, they're not in the business to not meet the customer's expectations, right? So it's not like they're, well, we just don't want to do it because we don't feel like it today. That's not what they're doing. What's happening is typically, yeah, there are there are issues in the supply chain and raw materials and all that kind of stuff. That stuff, that stuff does happen. Most of the time, what I've seen communication between the supplier and the retailer not be the way it should, and I didn't have any idea you were going to order that much, where did that come from? I don't have that much product, and all well, you we say that's a supplier issue? Well, is it really, or is it a retailer not communicating what their expectations are? Personnel issues, I, I don't know what that means other than store associates not doing what they're supposed to do. I would argue most retailers are struggling with getting enough labor in the store to actually do those things, right? So it's not necessarily a personnel issue. It's literally trying to find people who want to go and work retail. It's hard work. It's dirty work. It's very tedious work sometimes. It's very exhilarating work when you get to help a customer out. But there's a lot of stocking and stacking and price changes and a whole bunch of other stuff that goes with that. So I can certainly understand the personnel issues. Tony, the theft one is an interesting one to me because I don't know how we measure that. How do you measure a consumer or a shopper theft versus an employee theft versus I didn't get what I paid for? You know, we could spend a whole four podcasts on just the theft situation and asset protection, and everybody sees the smash and grabs that are going on in stores, and those are real. Those are absolutely positively real. My challenge is, and you you, you and I have a, both have a good friend and Brad Delpherson who spent so many years at Walmart, he was like, well, what percentage is consumer for that? Well, I'm gonna say this. Well, how about how much is, I'm gonna forget Exactly, yeah. yeah, here's the deal. No, How do you measure this? Exactly. My son is a market asset protection manager for Walmart in Idaho. He does inventories with all of the stores. He's got 10 stores in Oregon and, and Idaho. He goes in. And he literally stops and stops the process, counts everything in the store, compares it to what he should have, and that gives him a shrink number. And I go, what's that like, son? He goes, it's kind of like going to California, putting a big piece of cardboard over my dashboard, driving to New York, and by the time I get back to New York, I pull the sheet off and go, oh, I almost ran out of gas. Oh, I almost ran out of oil. Oh, I was overheating. I have no idea, because once a year is when I get the report card. And certainly, we've got to come up with better ways of measuring consumer theft and employee theft and receiving issues, et cetera. There's technology out here is one of the use cases of RFID. Every time something comes in the store, I can measure it without throwing a person at it. literally have an RFID tag read. Every time something leaves the store, whether it leaves the store with a shopper or whether it leaves the store from an employee. I should be able to measure that. Did it go through the register or did it not go through the register? So uh, I know we'll get into this, but to me, the asset protection loss prevention use case of RFID has an enormous capability that has not yet been quite realized. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tony and I regarding the RFID in... Pro- well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tony and I regarding RFID at retail Join us next time as we wrap up our discussion, a part two of the same discussion right here at the Walton Supply Chain Center.